0: We'll hear argument this morning in Case 11551, Salazar, Secretary of the Interior versus Rama Navajo Chapter. Mr. Freeman.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The funding dispute in in this case is the result of two distinctive features of the ISDA statutory scheme. On the one hand, Congress has required the Secretary of the Interior to accept every self-determination contract proposed by an Indian tribe, provided that the contract meets the requirements of the Act without regard to the total number of contracts into which the Secretary must enter. On the other hand, in every fiscal year since 1994, Congress has enacted an explicit statutory cap on the amount of money that the Secretary may use to pay contract support costs under the ISDA and under those contracts. Now, we think under the circumstances, Congress intended the Secretary to resolve these the, the relationship between these provisions in exactly the way that the Secretary has.
2: Excuse me, but could does the Secretary have done anything else?
1: I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you.
2: Could the Secretary have done anything else? There's an allegation that the Secretary, in fact, pays some contractors more than their pro rata share, that it pays some nothing, right. so that it's, in effect, acting I don't want to use the word arbitrarily, but acting in whatever its best interest is. So what protects the contracting party from that, it, yes, from sir. that conduct, assuming it were to be clear?
1: Yes, sir. No, the Secretary has promulgated a formal nationwide policy. T- it
2: says it has a policy. Yes. The, the allegation is, is that it's not following it, that it's choosing to pay some people right. more than others.
1: Right. And let, let me address that. The allegations as I think, at page 9 to 10 of respondent's brief. Those allegations are, as a factual matter, false. For example, um, they've given a, a couple of examples where 0 percent contract support costs were paid. One of those examples is a contract where it had been entered into in that particular year. New contracts are paid under a different appropriation another example is they give a a case of a tribe that was paid 352 percent of its contract support costs. and let me explain i think it's important to understand how
3: before you do that it was my understanding that that system that has been described as arbitrary was not the one that was applicable to the years in question
1: that's that's right at at the time of the district court's ruling in this case from 1994 to about 2006 the Secretary followed a uniform pro-rata distribution methodology according to the needs of each of the individual tribes. Now, that's what we thought the tribes wanted. We thought that was the fairest way to do it. All, all,
4: within the speci- all within the dollar amount that was specified by the c- Congress in the
1: not-to-exceed language. That's exactly right, Your Honor. Yes. So uh, each tribe has an amount of need. This is the amount that is estimated as a negotiated figure between the Secretary and each tribe, and it is undisputed that the amounts that Congress has, been a, has appropriated have never been enough to pay 100 percent of each of those figures for each member of the respondent. did
5: Didn't we have similar language in Cherokee Nation, and uh, didn't we say that that language in Cherokee Nation, which was in the general appropriation statute, although not in each contract, uh, didn't mean that the Secretary
1: could refuse to pay? Uh, no, Your Honour. We did not have similar language in Cherokee. If you mean the Appropriations Acts. it was under the same. No,
5: I don't mean the Appropriations Act. I mean, I mean the, the the general statute that governed this program. No, that's right. And and maybe it would be
1: helpful if I could. So why here. does
5: it mean one thing there and mean something else when in in the Appropriations Act?
1: Well. It I may not be understanding Your Honor's question, but I I think it might be helpful if I explain what was at issue in Cherokee. In Cherokee, the Government was not in this Court making appropriations clause arguments. We were here making a very different argument. It was undisputed in Cherokee that Congress had appropriated enough money for the unobligated available funds, lawfully available funds, for the Secretary to pay all of the contracts that were at issue. Our argument, and to be sure we, we thought we were right, our argument was that Congress had, in other provisions of the Act, allowed us to set aside a certain amount of money that, albeit lawfully available to pay the contracts, we thought we could use to fund the agency's inherent federal operations. And the Court said, no, 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 these are contracts. Their money was lawfully available for you to pay, and there was no statutory restriction against you paying it, so you had to pay it. And this case involves the
2: circumstance that — Well, how — what was our — Uh, reference and acceptance of the Ferris Doctrine. And the Ferris Doctrine was almost identical to this situation, where Congress allotted a certain amount to the building of a particular dam, and the St. We applied, applied the Ferris Principle and said even though they gave it to one type of contract, the dam, they were paying one person less than others.
1: No, no Your, Your Honor. Had
2: a, an allotment adequate enough to cover that individual.
1: No, I, I think that's not quite an accurate characterization of Ferris. And it's important to understand what Ferris. I know what
2: the Federal Circuit said. I don't think the Federal Circuit's right. If well, you read Ferris, there was an, an appropriation for the dam.
1: But Ferris was an appropriation for, I think it was 40 some 1000 dollars for improvements to the Delaware River. And the government, the, the uh, Army Corps of Engineers, let out a contract for $37,000 to dredge the river. Then, after the contract had been let out, and this is critical, if you stopped the movie at the time the contract was issued, there was sufficient funds to pay that contract. They were lawfully available. We obligated them to the, sec- to the to the contractor. And then what happened in Ferris was, after that lawful binding agreement was entered, agency officials decided in their discretion that they'd prefer not to spend the money on that, and they instead built a wharf or something. And, and what the court said in Ferris, and this is, we're not, we have no quarrel with this principle, is that when the funds are lawfully available and you obligate them to a contractor without some contingency, then you can't just decide to spend it on something else, that's a breach. And it's not a defense to the breach that at the end of the, that at the end, once you've breached the contract, there isn't enough money left in the appropriation to go back and pay him what you should have. That's different from this case because there is not enough lawfully available money to pay every respondent.
5: But there wasn't in Ferris, either. I mean, that was the problem. If if the appropriations had been enough to cover that plus the later expenditures, there would have been no problem.
1: Your Honor, I think Ferris is correctly understood, particularly given this Court's subsequent decisions in Sutton, Bradley, Leiter, and other cases. Ferris is correctly understood as saying — and this is the proposition, incidentally, for which the Court cited Ferris in Cherokee. Ferris is understood as saying, If you've got a binding obligation in which you've promised to pay money that is lawfully available, Congress gave it to you, then if you agency officials do something in your, your executive discretion,
5: It's available, subject to appropriations. I mean, it, it was a subject to
1: appropriations. Well, well in Ferris, there were, in fact, the contract yeah. was not made subject to appropriations. And one of the things the Federal Circuit pointed out was that the subject to the availability of appropriations language that is now ubiquitous in government contracts was developed in part to make sure that the Ferris situation didn't later arise. But I want to underscore, if we know one thing in this case, we know that Congress intended for the Secretary not to pay any more than the amounts in the statutory caps.
6: MR. Mr. Freeman, can I try a hypothetical on you? And it's a, it really is a, a, a going to this question of what Ferris means. So suppose that there's a government program and it's to purchase airplanes. And it's uh, the authorization language says this is subject to appropriations in the same way that this language does and um, uh, the government under this program enters into 10 contracts of a million dollars each to buy 10 airplanes but then it turns out that congress appropriates only nine million dollars not 10 million dollars so my question is now there are 10 contractors uh, and but there's a shortfall of a million dollars right. do those contractors have contractual rights under ferris
1: i your Honor, it's going to depend on a couple of things, and let, let me, let me explain. I think, because by hypothesis and hypothetical, we're entering into the contracts in advance of appropriations. There is no right to be paid until the appropriations are made.
6: Yes, so the appropriation has been made, it's a nine million dollar appropriation.
1: Right. And in that circumstance, the, the agency cannot pay more than nine million dollars. And there is no binding obligation, contractual obligation on the government to pay more. But l- let me add something though in response. So,
6: uh, so either one of these airplane manufacturers is going to, uh, not have what he contracted for, or all of them are not going to have what they contracted for because everybody's going to, their, their, uh, contract and is going to be sliced.
1: And, and your honor, the reason why this is not a problem in real life is that there are other provisions in your ordinary procurement contracts under the ordinary kind of contracts that this case is not that take care of that. And the, the principal one is Because my understanding,
6: Mr. Freeman, is that that is what Ferris said, was that Ferris said in that situation where it turns out that there's a shortfall but where there are contractual
1: commitments,
6: that um, that the government is bound to live up to those contractual commitments. Your, and if there's a shortfall, then it comes out of the judgment fund.
1: No, Your Honor, it, it — there are a couple things there, but let me first explain why, as a practical matter, that doesn't happen in circumstances that are, are not like this scheme where we are required to enter into every contract. In your ordinary government procurement scheme, there are termination for convenience provisions. And, in fact, what happens in the circumstances in which Your, your Honor posits is the government terminates for convenience enough of the contracts to make sure that we have the money to pay if we didn't do that, it would be a violation of the Anti-Deficiency Act. And this Court has said many times.
2: So do the tribes have the right to stop providing the services that they've contracted to? Yes. How do they know that until they know what they're getting? Meaning they don't know what they're getting. They've signed a contract that says you're going to pay them for their services to their members and for their administrative costs. They incur that cost, and then at the end of the year, the government now says to them, you've honored your part, but we're not going to honor ours.
1: No, no, Your Honor, you're uh, that, that's not correct, and let me explain why. First, every contract that the, every member of the respondent class signed in this case says that the contractor's obligation to perform the services that are at issue is subject to the availability of appropriated funds. That's Section 1C3 of the model agreement that is read into every ISDA contract. They further have the ability under section 1B5 of that model agreement to stop at any point if they're worried that there's not going to be enough money and seek assurances from the secretary that there will be. Now, as to whether they know and when they know how much money they're going to get, that was the point of the 2006 distribution policy that the secretary adopted. Under the pro rata system that we used for the first many years, the tribe said, look, we don't know how pro rata is going to work out. So, in consultation with the tribes and, indeed, with the aid of several of the uh, counsel for the respondent class, we drafted a policy that What does the
2: system do to the 50-odd contracts that Arctic Slope, in its Aminkeye brief, points to that are similar to these? Does this now mean that, moving forward, that every government contractor who has a subject-to-appropriations language takes the risk that at some point in the middle of the contract, the government is going to dishonor its obligation and pay it less than it said it would?
1: No, no, Your Honor. And so how do,
2: how do we differentiate those 50 other contracts?
1: Well, it, it, I think they were citing a number of different statutes in which the statutes provide that funding is subject to the availability of appropriations. Now, it's important to underscore, that's why I started with this point, i don 't believe in any of those statutory schemes. is the government obligated to enter into every contract that comes in the door
6: well, well that 's partly why I asked you my hypothetical, Mr. Freeman, because I sort of wanted to see whether you would distinguish the hypothetical right. on that basis, but you didn 't You said no, it really doesn 't matter, even if the government is not obligated to enter into contracts. If the government has entered into too many too bad we can 't make those additional appropriations
1: and, and your Honor. It is — the unique features of this statutory scheme are absolutely important, but I wanted — I took Your Honor's question to be under the general appropriations principles that we are describing, what would the result be? And I, I think I'm right, but I should also add, as I said before, there are very strict uh, fiscal controls in 31 U.S.C. 1501 at sequitur that make clear and prevent the circumstance that Your Honor described.
7: Sorry, I'm not clear on what the hypothetical is. I thought her hypothetical, Justice Kagan's, was a situation where the statute says, Mr. Secretary, you can spend no money beyond what is appropriated, but the contract doesn't mention it. That's Ferris. I thought that the the real world is in contracting. You typically have both a statute that says don't pay more than is appropriated, and in the contract it says subject to appropriation. Putting the contracting party on notice. uh, uh, That's right, and — So which were you answering?
1: With respect to Justice Kagan, I I believe we had a colloquy in which uh, uh, I said that because, in her hypothetical, we were entering into the contracts in advance of appropriations. They would have to be made, express. The contracts themselves would have to be subject to the availability of appropriations. The the,
7: the words in the contract are
1: subject to appropriation. Yes. And without that, it would be a violation of the Anti-Deficiency Act. Yes.
7: Okay. So in in that world, now we get to the question, in that world, what happens when 15 people each enter into such a contract for $100,000 each? And the appropriation turns out to be too small to pay all of them, but big enough to pay some.
1: And, Your Honor, what I was trying to answer is that in your ordinary contractual scheme, the government solves that problem in a very straightforward way. We terminate for convenience the contracts, uh, enough of those contracts to ensure that we have no obligations beyond the available appropriations. Now, we can't do that here, which is why this is ultimately a question of congressional intent. So why
2: don't we let Congress fix it? Because there's so many ways that Congress could fix this problem directly by doing a line-item allocation. It could take away the obligation to enter into these contracts and fully fund. It could be much more direct than it's being given the interpretation that you're advancing.
1: Your Honor, I think it's important to understand what — and maybe it would help if I took a minute to explain this — what Congress was trying to do in this statutory scheme.
2: was trying — it was trying to tell the tribes, we're honoring our obligation by paying you the cost, but we're really not going to do it because we're going to let no. the government give you less? No, look, Congress could … I have to assume Congress intends what it says. It intends to obligate you to enter into contracts that, uh, that give – make you commit to paying their costs, correct?
1: Not with – yes, but 450J-1B says … Notwithstanding any provision of this Act, all funding under this Act is subject to the availability of appropriations. And let me explain why Congress would have wanted to enact this statute that has some unusual features. Congress, of course, could have said, we want to give every tribe the opportunity to enter to provide services in its own name to its own people, but we're going to do this on a regular contract basis, meaning we just give some to the Secretary. The Secretary signs contracts as they come in until he doesn't have any money left. And then any tribe after that who asks for for a contract, the Secretary says, no, we don't have the money to do it. But Congress chose a a different approach. Congress wanted, as a matter of self-determination, to require the Secretary to give every tribe who wants the ability to do this the opportunity to do it. But if it didn't then say all funding is subject to the availability of appropriations, the result would be that the government would be exposed to a, a liability that Congress could not estimate, because the ability of these tribes to pay for overhead costs and whatever varies tremendously do you want to, then do
3: you, do you uh, rely on you haven't mentioned it up till now, but Congress, in these appropriations said not in excess of it, yes. it wasn't just the general um, subject to appropriations. it was a specific amount the secretary shall not pay in excess of a certain dollar amount
4: for these costs i, I had exactly the same yes. question the not to exceed yes. language which i think is the word not to exceed hasn't been mentioned by you uh, yet because maybe you haven't had time but right. uh but, the, uh, uh, but would, it, yes. I, I thought that was what uh, judge dyke said yes. was the critical uh, the difference between this yes. and even the cherokee case right and uh, so my, my question is the, is the same as justice Ginsburg. Does, isn't that a principal part of your argument, that this contract said not to exceed, and then the sums differ from year to year, but let's say $95 million, something
1: that? Like that. That's exactly right, Your Honor. I mean, and when I, what I tried to answer to a question earlier, it is absolutely clear what Congress was trying to do here. And Congress said not to exceed a specific sum from year to year.
4: When the Congressional Budget Office or whatever agency it is that figures out um, – whether there's a deficit, and if so, as how much do they look at not to exceed, and do they take that amount seriously? or Oh,
1: oh uh, absolutely, Your Honor. And But the but
4: the position of the respondents is that it makes no difference. No difference at all. So Congress is saying nothing at all.
1: Yeah, yes. Did, so the
0: consequence did. on the ground is that if I'm a tribe and I want this money and I figure out that this is going to cost me $80,000, yes. I sign a contract and say this is going to cost me $100,000. Because I know there isn't going to be a a, hundred thousand dollars. There's only going to be eighty thousand dollars, and that's what I need, right?
1: right? Well, in in fact, it can't work that way, Your Honor, because the amounts are uh, limited by statute to the reasonable and allowable costs that are not duplicative of the principal program funds. The funds. Well, but if
0: eighty thousand is reasonable, the only way to get that is to ask for a hundred. Right. And
1: if a tribe thinks that we haven't put into the — we haven't offered them enough money for their contract support costs. They're allowed to decline the offer that we make, and they can — unusually, for government contractors, they can file a separate lawsuit before entering into the contract to litigate whether the terms are sufficient.
3: Mr. Freeman, where did these caps come from? Did the agency initiate them? Or there's a a chart. Perhaps I don't understand it correctly. It's on page 210 of the joint appendix. Uh, uh, that, that seems to indicate that it was the BIA that proposed the cutback.
1: Uh, the caps come from Congress, Your Honor. Respondents have, make, uh, have made an argument at the end of their brief that um, the government should be liable here notwithstanding the caps because the BIA hasn't requested sufficient funding. Um, from Congress, or rather the President hasn't requested sufficient funding from Congress. Uh, that argument, we think, is baseless for a number of reasons, and just as a factual matter, um, the GAO has done some studies of this. There are reports in the Joint Appendix explaining why BIA has not, in every year, asked for what turned out to be enough money, and that's because these fun- this funding is done on a prospective estimated basis. And because we're required to take into a — required to accept every contract that comes in the door. BIA may estimate and its, its — make its best available estimate, and OMB and the President may accept that if he chooses, but it still may turn out not to be enough.
5: It's not really relevant here anyway, is it? No, it is it? not. It is not
1: relevant. Robert. No, that's right.
5: Uh, what, what I don't understand is why the language not to exceed <clears throat> is any different from Congress appropriating $900,000. You mean the world changes if if Congress, instead of just appropriating $900,000, authorizes the Secretary to expend,
1: not to exceed $900,000? I don't think in that circumstance there would be any difference. Here, the reason why it's different is that this is ultimately a question of what Congress was trying to do. There's no constitutional argument that Congress can't enact these kind of caps. And we know from the not-to-exceed language that Congress was being as emphatic as it could.
5: Well, it, I would think $900,000 is pretty emphatic, <laughs> if that's all you appropriate.
1: Right. And just, it's just this is the way, as an ordinary matter, that in appropriations, Congress expresses an internal cap. It's that
6: like, runs you right into Ferris. Then you're saying that there's no difference between the standard Ferris-type appropriation, which is just an amount of money, and this kind of appropriation, which is up to or not to exceed that amount of money.
1: Your Honor, Ferris, we think, is inapplicable just to this type of statutory scheme where we're required to enter into the contracts and there's a limited sum available. That's Judge Dyke's reasoning in the, in the Federal Circuit. But let me put that aside for the moment and address Ferris directly. As I said before, Ferris is about the circumstance in which there are enough available funds in the first instance to pay the contractual obligations. Now, Ferris does not and cannot stand for the proposition that an executive officer, looking at the amount Congress made available in the first instance, can bind the Treasury to pay more than Congress has expressly stated he may bind it to. This Court has said many, yes, many times. I think that uh,
4: the respondent's position is that the contracting officer says, now, <clears throat> this is going to go over the not-to-exceed amount, but not to worry, just sue us under the judgment deficiency; just sue us under the
1: judgment Right. And there is no reason to think that Congress contemplated such a scheme, which would amount to essentially yeah. give uh, a full contract support cost funding, but only for the tribes who had the resources and sophistication to sue, minus litigation costs. That makes no sense at all. When Congress says not to exceed, a certain amount of money may come out of the Treasury.
0: It makes sense if you're looking at the reality of the budgeting process, because in one case, that line item appears on the Department of Interior budget, and in the other case, it appears somewhere else in the Judgment Fund budget, and they can say it's not our fault. It's the Judgment Fund. The Court
1: made us do it. Well, I don't think so, Your Honor. The Judgment Fund, it's not a new thing. The Judgment Fund is available only to pay judgments, validly entered against the United States. Now, we don't dispute that it's available to pay breach of contract damages, but, of course, a breach of contract requires a violation of a — a violation a failure to perform a binding contractual promise. Now, we think we've performed our promise here because our, our promise was to pay the sums that Congress made lawfully available, and we think that to the extent respondents think we promised to pay more than Congress explicitly said could be available, the Secretary had no authority to enter
2: into that promise. That's true of every contract. That's where I'm getting stuck on what your theory is. The Anti-Deficiency Act says you can't spend more than you're given. Yes. So every single contractor, under your logic, should know that when they sign a contract, the government can break it because if it doesn't have enough funds, it can't pay and, and, Your Honor, But, but — so there's no real logic to your argument other than, than to say we can't — oh, if the contract says subject to appropriations, let's do away with Paris, let's do away with Cherokee Nation, um, and no, no, this means that we pay you what we can.
1: No, that, that, that is emphatically not true. As, a, as an initial matter, as I tried to explain before, there are very strict requirements in the government's Contracting processes, such as the federal acquisition regulation, that limit the ability of the government to make promises it can't keep, particularly with regard to but, but funding. But what you're
2: saying is, you make two promises on the ISDA: we're going to pay you your s- support costs, your administrative costs in full, and. We're going to retain the right to break that promise. That's really what you're saying the ISDA says.
1: No, it, that's not right, Your Honor. And I, I'll answer this, and then I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. The ISDA says our promise is to pay you what Congress lets us pay you. It's not breaking our promise to limit it to appropriations. It so you ignore all in the
2: language where it says we're going to pay you X amount. All the law that says you have to be reimbursed, the tribes have to be reimbursed for all their costs, all of that is going to be ignored.
1: Well, it's not that it's ignored. It's that Section 450J1B says, notwithstanding any other provision of this Act. And we think that's fairly clear.
0: Thank you, Counsel.
8: Mr. Phillips. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court... I guess I'd like to start on the Ferris Doctrine, because it seems to me that is the fundamental issue in this case. And the the principle of Ferris, and and it's interesting to me that that, uh, counsel for the government never once makes any reference to the Comptroller General's interpretation of the Ferris Doctrine, which in the Red Book says as plain as day that in circumstances like this one, where the government has more contractors uh, than than one — and those contractors are subject to an appropriation, uh, and it cannot exceed that appropriation. I think all that language, frankly, is, is implied anyway.
4: No. So, so you, say not, you say you don't want us to mention not to exceed in our opinion, oh, other, no, than, the, other than to say that it's irrelevant.
8: No, not to exceed has a very significant role to play, Justice Kennedy. Does the Red
4: Book talk about not to exceed as being any different from general appropriation? Uh,
8: the, the place where not to exceed, I think carries particular significance is that in in the ordinary situation we would be entitled to seek injunctive relief to take money from other sources within the within the budget and get an injunction and that's very unique to the, to this context ordinarily government contractors cannot seek injunctive relief this not does to exceed language book, Does deprives the red us book
4: today. refer to not to exceed the not to exceed language
8: i'm sorry just does of,
4: the red book have uh, refer to the not-to-exceed language.
8: The, the Red Book doesn't — well, actually, the Red Book does say that, that all of these phrases are essentially the same, which is that they — I, I just
7: saw I read the Red Book. I might have missed the part that you're about to cite to, because I'd like you to tell me where in the Red Book it says that a contractor who has a contract which says subject to appropriations and is then dealing with a law of Congress which says the appropriation will not exceed X million — is then entitled to be paid on a contract where he and like contracts do exceed X million. Where, where does it say that in the it, Red Book? The red I couldn't book, find it.
8: The, well, the Red Book talks about subject to appropriations, talks about... Out- I, I did
7: read it. I just would like to know what page you want me to read, it, read again. I, I read the Chamber of Commerce brief. The Chamber of Commerce brief says everybody knows that the contractors are paid in this situation, so I looked up the authorities that they cited. Okay? I read the Red Book. I read my, the case of Cherokee. I read, uh, Ferris, uh, I read Sutton, uh, I can't say I'm perfect at reading.
8: Okay.
7: But, uh, I couldn't find it. That's why I would appreciate uh, your referring me uh, to yeah. those citations.
8: 2 jo Red Book 6-44.
7: Okay, so I have That's it in front of me by coincidence. <laughs>
8: there it is. <laughs> so this is, this is in our brief at page 31. Yeah, yeah but No, no, I
7: have the bread Book 644.
8: Right. <laughs> what page for those of us who don't have it? In my brief it's on page 31.
7: Mm-hmm.
8: Thank you. I'm sorry?
7: I'm not saying it isn't there. I've just read through these pretty quickly. I just need a little ref- refresher.
8: Yeah, if you look at, at, I'm sorry, 2GAO, well I think you can use either of these, 2GAO Red Book 6-28-29. Oh, no, I don't talks, have that one. Talks about, yeah. for followed by a purpose and an amount has the, quote, same effect as, quote, words like not more than or or not to exceed. So I mean, what they're I saying is that, that all —
2: I'm
8: sorry. I apologize, Your Honor. It's 2 GAO Red Book 6-28 to dash 29. And I think the same
7: — No, that, that isn't quite my question. My question was, I would like the authority for the proposition that when you have a set of contractors and they read their contract and it says subject to appropriation, and then you read the law and it says they will not be paid, it shall not exceed $4 million — and then you discover that the amount of the contracts of the same kind in this category are more than four million dollars. I want to know where in the red book it says that they get paid more than four million dollars. That's all. That's fairly simple. And if that's, if that's normal practice, it must be there's a lot of authority for it. So, so that I, uh, I just want to know what to read.
8: Well, I, uh, here I would, 6-45 says if a contract is but one activity under a larger appropriation, It is not reasonable to expect the contractor to know how much of that appropriation But they aren't talking about there
7: where it says specifically in the contract, subject to appropriations. At least I think they're not. Now, I would like you right now to tell me, no, you're wrong. It does say
8: that. Well, it says if Congress appropriates a specific dollar amount for a particular They're, They're distinguishing Sutton from Ferris. I'm sorry? They're trying to use that to
7: distinguish Sutton from Ferris, and it's filled with, well, we're not sure about this, because Sutton, which is Brandeis, uh, which comes out the opposite way, uh, did have a line appropriation. And I thought that just refers to the fact that uh, because there's a line appropriation, the contractor's on notice. Right, exactly. Exactly. And when you do business with the government over a period of years and it's subject says subject to appropriation, not necessarily you, but your lawyer, who's a good lawyer, should look up and see what the appropriation is or whether it was made. Does it as a I matter of policy? policy.
8: Suppose, you know, no, com- no, not as
7: a matter of policy. I'm putting it as a question because that was my first reaction, and I expect you to say no, Justice. Well, Burr, you're wrong, and that isn't the practice. <laughs> and here is what I read to show that isn't the practice. That's all I'm asking.
8: I guess I don't understand exactly how to answer that question, Justice. By, sh- you-
7: by showing me where in the law it says, and I don't want to repeat the question for the third time. But it said. I wish you would. I, I, I've lost the question. <laughs> well, you heard sometimes not everyone pays sufficient attention to these very clear questions.
8: <laughs> I, I, I'm doing my best, Justice Breyer.
7: <laughs> Where look hypothetical. Four people, four identical contracts. The words appear subject to appropriation. Right. Each is for a million dollars. Then you read the appropriation that was later made, and in that statute it says, we hereby appropriate three million, and it is, the payments are not to exceed three million. Okay? Something like that. All I want is the authority that says each of those four people can come in and get the one million dollars, totaling four million. I want the authority that says that.
8: I, I, I mean, I would read Ferris.
7: No, That's Ferris, true. it did not say anything about it in the contract.
8: Well, I mean, Ferris has a limitation. The, 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 the government has already told us that subject to appropriation is implicit in every, in every agreement anyway. So there's nothing special about putting in the words subject to Oh, there
7: certainly is. Putting in the words gives the lawyer notice.
8: Well, again, the only notice it gives is that there has to be enough money, when you look at the appropriation, to cover your contract. Ferris did
5: not say, as I recall it, you can't expect the contractor to have notice that appropriations have been limited. It said you can't expect him to have notice as to how much of the uh, expenditures under that appropriated act have been spent. Isn't that the only thing it required notice of?
8: Right. That's, that's,
5: I would think if you sign a contract, uh, you, you, you better be sure that there are appropriations for it.
8: Clearly. And that, I mean, and, and Justice Breyer, the Court's opinion in Cherokee said that the primary purpose of the subject availability clause is to deal with a situation where you enter into the agreement ahead of the, of the fiscal year. And so everybody knows that if Congress, for whatever reason, decides not to appropriate any money, there's no deal. So in,
4: in, your, in your view, if the tribe comes to the government and they said, look, we've been looking at what you've done with the other tribes, you've appropriated $95 million, and the appropriation says not to exceed $95 million, but go ahead and make this contract with us anyway. No one cares. And you say, go ahead and make it, right?
8: Well, I I mean, it seems to me it's the government's problem to sort out.
4: That's your your position, isn't
8: it? Right. But again, put it in the context, Justice Kennedy, of the individual tribe.
3: You can't get it from Cherokee. I mean, yes, there's Ferris, and then Cherokee is relying on Cherokee. But Cherokee was very careful to point out that there were funds to cover No no question about it,
8: Justice Ginsburg. I I don't think this case is controlled by Cherokee. I I do think Cherokee answers the question of of how far can you carry the subject-to-availability language. I don't think it gets the government anywhere near home. And then the question is, what do you do with the not-to-exceed language? And what I would suggest there is that that's no different, frankly, from from Ferris or any other situation, because what the Congress operates against the backdrop of of Ferris, which is a 120-plus-year-old doctrine that has been – allowed to stay in place by Congress for that entire time. And as the Chamber of Commerce tells us, this is a rule that, the, that every contractor takes as an article of faith in, in dealing with the United States government. Am, am, am
5: I correct that, that what the government is arguing is that the fact that this limitation was included in the particular contract makes it different from Ferris?
8: Well, it's hard to make that argument, because the, the, the not-to-exceed language, at least, that comes out of the — that's in the appropriations provision. That's not in the contract itself. The contract itself simply says subject to appropriations. Which, on your which, which Ferris
5: did not. Did, did, Ferris, did the Ferris contract say that?
8: It, it, Ferris doesn't have the subject to appropriation, but Ferris contract says the appropriation limit is X.
7: And it does. Where do, you, where, where do you get the I, — I couldn't find the contract, the language in Ferris. Is a contractor who is one of several persons to be paid out of an appropriation is not chargeable with knowledge of its administration. True. Uh, Dyke says, in his opinion, that one difference from Ferris is they wrote the idea into the contract, saying you're subject to appropriation to get to make that that lawyer chargeable with knowledge. And the second thing in Ferris is that it was an individual who went off on his own in the administration and paid money that he shouldn't have paid. It should have been over here for the contract. In this case, it is an instance where Congress itself required uh, the money to be paid as it was paid and didn't provide enough. Okay. So that's where I am with Ferris, which is a big question mark. And, and uh, I guess you could talk about that. Uh, but but all I wanted to know is what is well established in this field.
8: Well, I want to I, I, write
7: something that suddenly upsets. What is well established?
8: Okay, well I, I take this then straight from the red book again. It is settled that contractors paid from a general appropriation are not barred from recovering for breach of contract, even though the appropriation is exhausted. And so, even the and, and there's nothing and that in says no It says in
7: the contract you are barred. You are barred from recovering if we don't appropriate enough money. Should it say that? Wouldn't matter. Is that right?
8: Well, it would say that if if you don't appropriate enough money for the specific contract. Yes. I think that's clearly what Sutton holds: is that if if Justice Scalia and I have an agreement, okay. and and it's and the appropriation goes to $100 for our agreement, and and the contract says $500, I'm out of luck for for the extra Mr. $400. dollars
2: um, this is an unusual situation with the tribes, <clears throat> because in the normal, not to exceed right. appropriation by Congress, um, the government rightly says, we have the power to not contract. And in military contracts and others, we have a for convenience cancellation. We have all sorts of things that protect us from the deficiency. But this is a unique situation because the government, on the one hand, despite their protestations to the contrary, are forced to accept these contracts. And on the other hand, Congress is saying, don't pay more on them. We're telling you to accept more payment and right. we're going to give you should we create a special rule for this why shouldn't we create a special rule for this unique situation because essentially what you're doing is putting the
8: backs of this problem putting the the burden of this problem on the backs of of, of innocent contractors who well, is it, entered into in good faith these agreements mm.
5: is it just a question of are creating a new rule or rather is the proposition whether the tribes when they entered into this should have realized that because of the peculiarity of these contracts that they had to be entered into, that the rule which otherwise would apply does not apply. It, it ought to be a question of
8: expectation of the tribe. Should it not? Right. Well, I, I, would, I would suggest a couple things about that. I, I mean, I think in general it's reasonable to look for, the, obviously, the intent of the parties and the expectations of the parties. This case went off on summary judgment that we, that, that we lost, I mean, even on a – So we didn't have an opportunity for any analysis of this. But the reality is, is that from the tribe's perspective, they recognize, because of Ferris and because of the way the Comptroller General has interpreted Ferris, that they are under a duty to make sure that there is an appropriation that covers this contract, that the amount, purpose, time requirements are all satisfied with enough money to accomplish that. Uh, And then, of course, we have the obligation to perform. Which, of course, that's the other half of the equation here. And just sort of don't, biop- that's why I wouldn't. You don't say- have the
3: obligation to perform. I mean, the, right in a term of the contract, that their lack of sufficient appropriations, performance by either party, is excused. Well,
8: that, that, yes, Justice Ginsburg. But the problem is, we don't know the answer to that. Until after the year of performance is done, or at least months into the performance, and sometimes literally after we've already suppose performed. you did
4: know. Suppose the tribe knew that the 95 million, let's assume that that's the not to exceed amount, uh, had already been obligated. Could the could the tribe then go ahead and make the government and uh, contract with the government, and would the government have to make that contract in your view?
8: I mean, that, that is the Southern Ute case. And, I, and certainly you, you can make an argument to that. I The government has an is, argument is, is on the other side. Is it your
4: argument that the answer to that is yes?
8: The, the argument is it appears that Congress intended to require them to enter into that agreement. I, you know, the idea of Congress requiring the, uh, uh, an official to does enter it, into an it, agreement does, that violates a criminal statute is at least a, 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 a difficult concept to sort of wrap your it, mind in. Isn't
4: this more specific language than the general language? does not this specific language not to exceed Uh, supersede the general obligation to make the contract. Otherwise, it's meaningless. The not to exceed language is meaningless. You say it's meaningless.
8: No, no, Justice Kennedy, I, I told you what the meaning of the not to exceed language is. The not to exceed language ensures that we cannot turn to the BIA or anyone else in the interior and say, give us money from another source in order to pay for our contract,
3: and and we
8: can't use the injunctive relief that's otherwise available to us for that purpose. So that language has very significant importance Uh, in limiting what our options are in a circumstance where we're not being paid enough under the, the agreement.
3: Do I understand your position to be that, yes, the cap has meaning because in order to exceed the cap, the tribe has to sue? So any tribe that sues, for any tribe that sues, the cap is meaningless. It's only for the ones who are not sophisticated enough to sue. They're just stuck with what Congress said. So it seems to me uh, that would be a very bizarre scheme to set up. That you, you have a cap, but the cap is meaningless if you bring a lawsuit.
8: No, I, I mean, I, it, it seems to me that we can't. I mean, aside from bringing a lawsuit, I mean, we we could go to the secretary and say what? we don't have enough money to satisfy our contract. Would you take money from some other source in order to accomplish that? Because in the ordinary course, that's not uncommon to re, uh, rejigger the 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 uh, appropriation. Do you think
5: it protects these these unsophisticated tribes who don't know enough to sue? by not allowing anybody to sue?
8: Does
5: that make their situation better somehow? Uh,
8: to be sure, that, that would not make our situation any better. But My question Mr. is
3: whether the cap was meaningless, and I think your answer is yes, but anyone who sues, the cap is meaningless.
8: No. No, it, it, I, don't, I don't think it does that. It, it, it places inherent limitations. It, I mean, it, it says specifically that the Secretary is not authorized to shift money around in order to take care of this particular problem in this particular year that you otherwise would the be available fund. to us. You just go to the judgment fund. Of course, then it we— It makes it meaningless. Well, ultimately, it means that the burden of it will not fall on the tribes. It, it, it does mean that. But — and let's be clear about this. The Judgment Fund — this is not simply going to the Judgment Fund and asking for our contract support costs to be paid. Our argument here is that there has been a breach of contract, and we are entitled to the damages for the breach of contract, whether those are reliance damages or restitutionary damages, whether we're — whether we're supposed to get what we expected out of the deal or put Mr. back Mr. in the Phillips, position we look would look have this been look
6: at situation, in. it seems pretty clear that Congress did want to do something, which was to limit the amount of money. That was going to the tribes under these contracts. Do you think that there's a way that Congress can do that, oh, sure. consistent with this scheme that's set up by the statute? How could Congress do that? Uh, you know, if, if 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 they can't do it this way, how could they? Well, the
8: easy way would be to impose specific limitations in in every one of the contracts. Which, which, frankly, if you, if you read appropriations, bills, which I, I hate to say When you say specific limitations, taught,
6: what would that look
8: like? It would look like for the agreement between the United States and Rama Navajo for, for contract support costs in this particular – for taking over the police department. The contract support costs shall not exceed $150,000, period. That's the total appropriation. And if we look at our contract, and there's a specific number in the contract, and that contract number says $174,000, then we know that we're out of luck for the $24,000. Well, for so any particular
7: year, are they all entered into it about the same time?
8: What's that, Justice? For any
7: particular fiscal year, are all of these contracts entered into by a particular date?
8: Yeah, nothing is all that easy, obviously. Some of them enter into it on a fiscal year basis. Some of them enter into it on a, on a, on a calendar year basis. And, frankly, the, the part of the problem is when does the government get around to signing these agreements. And also there are 12 regions. I mean, part of the reason I, I would like to spend a second talking about the comment that, you know, we, we have this fair and equitable scheme in place in which we're allocating monies out. And the reality is, is that there is substantial evidence in the record, even though we have not had an opportunity to make a full record, that the, that the, that the Bureau makes mistakes in 40 percent of these contractual arrangements. And I know my, my colleagues is going to dispute that, but, but the truth is we've known that for years. They just make mistakes. And people get Impaired, their contract rights are impaired on that basis. This is not some kind of an equitable scheme that's operating here. There are 12 different regions operating in 12 different ways, and some people get money, some people get 300% of theirs, some people get Mr. zero. Phillips, of
2: how does Congress do this without upsetting the entire scheme? Knowing that these contracts are not all signed on one day, that there are 12 regions that the negotiations go over time, how could Congress achieve the scheme that the government wants now? How would it write this contract? Well, the the easy way
8: would be to take away the requirement that the government has to enter into all of these contracts at the request of the tribe. And, and, and that's clearly available. They, if they want to go down that path, they can do that in a heartbeat. And then they have all the discretion they want, they want to apply under these circumstances. So, I mean, there's, obviously there is a bit of, as we said in the brief, schizophrenia. And I have, I have some misgivings about describing Congress that way, but there is some schizophrenia in how they approach this problem. Do you have to
5: solve it the contract by contract? Couldn't there be a, a provision in the in the law which which says that uh, where appropriated funds are inadequate to cover the totality of uh, uh, of, of costs under this statute, uh, it will be apportioned as follows. Yes, Congress could, or the Secretary will apportion it. That's all it would take. You wouldn't even have to do it contract by contract. Right?
8: I I, I, mean, I think that you would prefer be. contract by contract well, I just for think your clients. Client. Oh, absolutely. But, but, but uh, you know, I don't disagree yeah. with that. Like, and, and as we argued in our brief, there are three or four different ways that Congress can fix this problem uh, going forward. But and, and, and that's and that's the message I thought from Justice Sotomayor is why don't we let Congress fix the problem and allow the background principles of Ferris, as interpreted by the Comptroller General. To apply in this case, in order to resolve the contract dispute that's properly, obviously, before the court at this point. I'm sorry. I think,
0: I, I think this may have been asked, and I'm not sure the an- I understood the answer. Is uh, this is this on an ongoing, forward-looking basis? In other words, you enter in the contracts and then you wait and see whether there are appropriations?
8: Yeah, typically, what happens is you enter into the agreement sometime just before the appropriation comes down. It's it's, it's usually pretty close because.
0: Well, so doesn't it make? I mean, doesn't the system that the government is operating under make a lot of sense? Because let's say the tribe says, "Look, we need a million dollars." The secretary agrees to it, and then I assume the two of them get together and say, "Well, we'll we'll try to get the appropriation for it." You know, you understand we may not get it, but this is how much you need. We'll go back and get it. If you get it, that's great. If you don't, well, then that's.
8: If you and, and 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 Mr. Chief Justice, if if they did that on a on a tribe-by-tribe, contract-by-contract basis, I, I wouldn't have any problem with that, because then you're on notice. But when they say to you, okay, fine, here's — you know, this is the — here's your contract support cost provision. There's a specific number in there, cents. That's what you ought to get. And we get an appropriation that comes back in that says the Government will — you know, we have appropriated $100 million for co- contract support costs, There are 330 other tribes out there potentially with contracts that are involved here. It is – and just to put it in context, we are talking about – you know, many of these tribes are in incredibly remote situations – they don't have access to all of the other information about what's going on. And the real are question suggesting is to impose that on the tribes. Are you suggesting
0: that Congress has to go through each of those contracts and say this is how much we're going to appropriate, this is how much?
8: I, I think that's I, – I actually think that would be the fairer way to do it, and I don't think it would be as burdensome as, as your question implies, because, again, I, what else does staff have better to do than to sit down and put all <laughs> those appropriations together? Well, the question
0: is whether it's the staff in Congress that's going to do it or the staff at the Department of the Interior. And I suppose well, Congress can reasonably determine that the people at Interior know better about how to do it than we do.
8: Wait, but then, then they could do it by — by expressly by reference. I mean, if, in fact, Interior has set it out that way and has it all done, then then they can just incorporate it into the statute anyway. I mean, there are simple ways to do it. There are broader ways to do it. And as I said to Justice Sotomayor, clearly Congress could simply, you know, absolve the government of its responsibility to enter into any contract that a that — when an Indian tribe shows up at their doorstep. All of those seem to me preferable than saying to the tribes, after they have fully performed their side of the deal, okay, I'm
2: sorry, we're not going to pay you. The the other thing that's odd about I'm sorry, that that, that, that you keep saying that, but I thought in your earlier answer, you said that the contracts are generally signed by the time of the appropriation. Right. Where is that in the cycle of performance? Is that at the beginning of performance?
8: That's at the beginning of performance. But, But what we find out about, you know the notices that we are ulti- that we later receive is at some point we're, we're sending you 75 percent in some situations, or we're going to send you exactly the same amount of money you got last year, even though. That so one, the that
2: tribes, works. even when the appropriation comes out, they don't know how much the department has contracted with other tribes. Right. So have, they're performing until they get that notice later on.
8: Exactly, and and candidly assume that it, either one of two things will happen: either we will ultimately be paid in full, which has happened. I mean, in the last year. They were, in fact, paid in full, or, alternatively, that they will have access to the Judgment Fund in order to uh, to, to get the recovery they're otherwise entitled to.
6: Mr. Phillips, do you think, uh, and the one question here is what did Congress want? And w- one answer might be Congress wanted exactly what the Government says it wanted, but another answer might be something different, that actually Congress wanted there to be um, unlimited funds for these tribes, but that it wanted to shift the cost of some of those funds to the judgment fund outside of the interior budget. Right. Do, do you? I mean, do you contest the government's view of what Congress wanted here, and if so, how?
8: Well, I, I think the question is, it's unclear what Congress really wanted in this case, and therefore you ought to construe the, the scheme in a way that is most favorable to the tribes. Uh, and and if that means that the scheme operates so as to protect. Uh, the integrity of the appropriations process and the spending process for in a particular year and prevents us from being able to seek relief outside of this contract support cost appropriation limitation. That makes perfect sense to me. Leaving open, obviously, the availability of the judgment fund at the end of the day so that the tribes do not, in fact, have to bear the full burden of, of this arrangement as opposed to, as opposed to anyone else. I mean, that's, again, we do provide, we, we perform the services. We don't know. We do it in good faith. Under those circumstances, it seems to me that's the classic situation in which we should receive full compensation. If so there no further questions, Your Honors, thank you.
0: Thank you, Mr. Phillips. Uh, Mr. Freeman, you have four minutes remaining.
2: Thank Do you. you dispute Mr. Phillips' statement that the tribes don't know how much they're getting until some point further into the performance cycle?
1: Uh, in part, Your Honor. Let me explain as I mentioned earlier, uh, for the first many years in the scheme, we did a uniform pro-rata distribution methodology. The tribes came to us and said, look, that's a problem for us because we don't have any budget transparency. We can't see how much we're going to get. So we adopted this policy in 2006, and one of the principal elements of that policy is that it guarantees that the, if, as long as Congress appropriates as much money as it did in the previous fiscal year, which it generally has, the tribe will get immediately, like within two weeks, the exact amount of money that it received in the previous year. And that money comes immediately. They can use it as, however they want. It's not subject to apportionment, unlike most federal agencies. We don't dole it out. They get it right away. Now, the question then becomes what to do with any additional money that Congress has appropriated, and the policy provides for a distribution of that money on what we call a bottoms-up basis. We give it to the tribes that are the farthest away from 100 percent of funding. That re- resolution was negotiated with the tribes, and indeed with some counsel for respondents. It's, we think, and I might be wrong about this, but we think that that's the solution that the tribes want, if the caps have any effect.
6: I guess what I don't understand about the government's argument, Mr. Freeman, is exactly what the contractual rights of the tribes become. I mean, this is supposed to be a contract, and we've held that it's a contract, and usually contracting parties have rights to something. Yes, so what do they have a right to, in your
1: view? Well, first of all, le- let's make clear, let's make sure that we're That was, not a,
6: that was a straightforward question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, they have a right, Your Honor, in the first instance, to the principal promise that's under any ISDA contract, which is we give the amount of money that the Secretary would have provided for the program funds- No, but opera- what do
6: they have a right to with respect to these additional- uh, overhead costs.
1: Con- contract support costs. They have a right as a class to the distribution of every dollar that Congress appropriates and for every contract. But what does
6: each individual tribe have a right to?
1: A proportionate share based on the Secretary's uh, policy for the distribution of these in light of the caps.
6: We- I, let do me- you think they do have a right to a pro-rata share? We think in they- other words, the Secretary could not say oh, you know, uh, these tribes have been doing a better job, so we'll give it to them, or these tribes need it more, so we'll give it to them. You think that there's a contractual right to a pro-rata share? We
1: think there's a contractual right to, in fact, the contracts often reference these policies directly. Uh, in, for example, page 123 of the Joint Appendix, one of the contracts in this case says you'll be paid according to the distribution policies adopted by the Secretary. So in that case, yeah, we've bound ourselves... Well, I'm poli- sorry, that
0: I didn't think that was responsive. Uh, does the Secretary... Of- Justice Kagan can defend her own question, but I, does the Secretary have the discretion to adopt something other than a pro-rata distribution when there are not sufficient appropriations?
1: We, we think within a range of reasonable solutions after consultation with the tribes, yes. We must answer that, that question,
3: must answer correct. that question, yes, yes, because that's exactly what the Secretary did. you you explained that it was pro-rata. That's right. It is no longer
6: pro-rata. This is a very very strange kind of contractual right. The The contracting tribe has a right to have the Secretary use discretion to decide how much the contracting tribe gets. What yep. kind of contract is that?
1: Well, respectfully, respectfully, Your Honor, it, that, that is an exaggeration. Congress has appropriated since 1994 more than $2.3 billion in contract support cost funds. We've distributed all of that money to the tribes. The, all of the tribes here have gotten substantial sums. No,
6: I'm not contesting. I mean, clearly you think and the Secretary thinks that there's an obligation to distribute all that money. Right. and And I don't think anybody disagrees with that. The question is, what each individual tribe has a contractual right to.
1: May I answer the question? Huh? Your Honor, once it is clear that the caps control the total amount of money that the Secretary may spend, every further question is a question of allocation. We think we have the policy that's right. It was negotiated with the tribes and council for respondents. But if we're wrong about that, we can have that fight another day. The question here is whether the caps define the maximum amount of money that the Secretary may spend, and we think they do.
0: Thank you, Council. Council. The case is submitted.